My name is William Menard, and this is The American Immigrant, the podcast about immigration in America. My guest today is Nicholas Sarwark. He is the chairman of the Libertarian National Committee. Prior to that, he was a chair of the Maryland Libertarian Party and later a public defender in Colorado. Mr. Sarwark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Um, in 2015, during the presidential campaign, you penned an open letter to Muslim Republicans stating, quote, Republicans like to talk a good game about our Constitution, but clearly many are making an exception when it comes to religious liberty. If you've not previously considered the Libertarian Party, I encourage you to do so now. Since then, Donald Trump was elected president. With his election, what types of liberties are Muslims in America at risk of losing now? And what would the Libertarian Party do to change that? You know, with the election of of Donald Trump, a lot of the rhetoric that he threw around during the campaign has at least the possibility of becoming policy. We can't really be sure because he's not been always so good at the follow through uh, as much as he is at the talking. But, um, you know, I think the real concern that we see uh, as libertarians is this idea that we'll normalize treating one group of Americans differently because of their religion, because of their ethnic background. Um, And once you start normalizing taking away the liberties of of one group of Americans, then you start normalizing taking away the the liberties of other groups of Americans. And one of the things that really distinguishes the Libertarian Party from other political parties uh, in the country is the idea that that we stand up for all of your freedoms all of the time and of all the freedoms of all people all of the time. So we don't pick and choose between favored groups. It's not something where we engage in that politics of pitting, say, you know, police officers versus the communities they serve or, you know, um, different ethnic groups or, or racial groups against each other. We believe in a a country where everyone is treated equally under the law. And that kind of rhetoric saying that certain people should be treated differently and have restrictions placed on them because of either their religious background or their ethnic heritage, that there's a, there's a real problem with that uh, from our perspective. And I think it's become a lot more likely that something like that will be implemented. Um, even if it starts in the guise of, you know, just a, different visa restrictions or a more restrictive uh, tracking program for people who come from certain countries that just happen to coincide entirely with countries that are Muslim majority. Well, I okay, so that, that kind of brings me into a, I guess, an immigration national security question. As you've been stating, your, your party is kind of supports, um, largely supports the freedom of movement of immigrants uh, into the uh, into and, and out of the United States. But at the same time, your party platform states that we support control over the entry into our country to foreign nationals who pose a credible threat to security, health, or property. Right. You know, the U.S. currently conducts background and fingerprint checks for most people coming into the U.S. So what is the position of the Libertarian Party as to what else they would do or support in terms of security checks, and how do you balance that against making sure that people can come in freely and also 
in doing those security checks and and whatever kind of uh, security measures you're going to take, how do you avoid not doing that in a way that is is discriminatory or targets one group in particular? Okay, so this is going to be a big answer. Um, we'll try and unpack Go it for one it. piece at a time. So uh, we start with the idea that when we when we talk in the party platform about a credible threat to security, we're talking about that as an individualized basis that can't be turned into um, you know targeting an entire group or targeting everyone from an entire country like say Syria and saying they're all a threat because they came from Syria. That doesn't fly and doesn't meet with you know just standards of, of how individuals should be treated in front of the law. You know, every every potential immigrant, everyone seeking an entry visa should be treated as an individual. Um, you know, and and the, those things that reflect on countries shouldn't apply to the detriment of the potential immigrant. If, if anything is going to apply where it's a country-by-country country thing, it should be something more similar to, um, you know, like Salvadoran immigrants or undocumented Salvadoran immigrants who are given uh, sort of preferential treatment as far as deportation proceedings based on the country being a dangerous place to go back to, but they're not treated differently because they're Salvadoran. They're not treated uh, in a negative way because they're Salvadoran. So it would have to be an individual thing. And the vision that, that we have as a libertarian party of how that works is it's kind of similar to something you see in the gun control issue, where the, the shift in the, the regime of concealed carry in this country has been for more and more states to go to what are called shall-issue concealed carry permits. Um, I think New York is probably one of the few holdouts that still has may-issue permits. In a may-issue state, you have to go give a good reason to the law enforcement in your jurisdiction why you should be able to carry a gun to protect yourself for self-defense. In a shall-issue state, you submit the fingerprints, the background check, the fee, whatever, you, you take pictures and stuff, and then it's the onus is put on law enforcement to show a reason why you shouldn't get a permit. You know, that the presumption is that if you're a law-abiding citizen without a criminal record that makes you a prohibited person, that you get that concealed carry permit, and they have to show a good reason why not to give it to you. You know, the, the vision that we have as libertarians for entry visas is something that would be like a shall-issue entry visa, where a potential immigrant from wherever would submit, you know, fingerprints and, and health records and uh, criminal background checks from their country of origin, along with a processing fee and, and pictures, and then the onus would shift to the federal government to show a reason why this person is a credible threat, but it would be the, the burden of proof would be on the government to show why someone was dangerous rather than on the immigrants to show that they are safe. Um, and that's kind of the, the real shift the libertarian immigration policy would have. I think you had a question in there. I heard you. Well, I, I, I think what comes, I, I think again, though, what comes naturally flows from that is, let's say the U.S. is in investigating a particular individual from a country that you know, there isn't a really good relationship between the U.S. and that country or or there just isn't a lot of shared communication. How is the U.S. supposed to vet somebody in which they cannot, for intents and purposes, 
vet them. Um, they can't really confirm that they have no criminal record or that they haven't been investigated by the government for particular crimes or um, terrorism issues or things like that. Why is it on the onus of the government to go out and take the, the measure of, of investigating people? Because the, the individual's right of migration is is the the thing is if you believe in, in free markets and you believe that individuals have fundamental human rights, that doesn't necessarily depend on which side of an imaginary line you were born on. You know, that's that's the fundamental philosophical shift that you get as a libertarian is this idea that people are people and you shouldn't treat them differently because they were born in a different country. Um so, you know, they should be free to, to come and, and seek out the American dream, the same as my great-grandfather came back in uh, the early 1900s, um, you know, with very little money. And to try and, you know, the, it would be ridiculous to put the burden on an immigrant from someplace like, let's say, Sudan or Somalia, where, you know, you're coming from a, a ridiculously poor country with very very poor infrastructure um, that may or may not be super corrupt and, and there may be all sorts of issues as far as political investigations and things like that. And you're telling this poor immigrant from this country that doesn't have a lot of infrastructure that the burden is on them to show that they are safe um, rather than putting the burden on the, the United States federal government which has more invest, investigatory power than any other power in the world and more intelligent assets overseas than any other power in the world, I would think that that our government would be able to find any credible evidence that someone is engaged with or associated with terrorism. You know, the amount of unconstitutional spying that's been done over the last couple of decades, I would think they would at least be able to find some of that. Um, but maybe I'm wrong on that. You know, I, I think that that kind of gets into a question of which I, I've actually gotten into um, or with a, a previous guest on this on the show, which is, is there a value philosophically? Is there a value in having borders? Obviously, we're not saying that that anytime soon that we're going to get rid of the United States of America or or any other country. But is there a value in having a border that we speak? that we spend a lot of time and money and effort protecting rather than just uh, allowing a completely free movement of people? Well, so this is, and, man, <laughs> um, I want to unpack one other thing before, from the previous question, before I answer this deep philosophical question, which is the other thing the Libertarian Party opposes is the racist immigration quotas that currently exist. The idea that you should set some sort of quota of the number of people that are allowed to come from somewhere based on a particular country, um, or that every country should have the same quota, even though you know some countries have a lot of immigrants and other countries have very few, is absolutely insane. Um, and it's what what enables you know coyotes, in, you know, with our southern border and creates these perverse incentives that line the pockets of criminal gangs um, and, and force people into a Hobson's choice of whether or not to abide by the immigration laws or, you know, have a better life for their families. So, and just, uh, sorry, and just to quickly, quotas is huge for us. 
Right. Just to quickly interject, uh, just to clarify, coyotes are, are people who um, help to essentially are paid by people to smuggle them from uh, uh, across the Mexico-U.S. border and often take advantage of, of people and families for, for large sums of money. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Mexican gangs that um, put people in panel trucks and sometimes leave them to die in the desert for thousands of dollars. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I live in Arizona, so I, I assume that everyone knows about coyotes. But Yes, and as an immigration sure. lawyer, I, I do also, but but many people don't. Um, but the, the, that's, that flips back to the whole idea of shall issue entry visas, is wouldn't it be better for the public fisc if there was, say, a $3,000 application fee that went with your application for an entry visa and you get $3,000 to the U.S. government that actually uses it to process your application versus giving, you know, five to $10,000 to a coyote who may leave you in the Sonoran Desert to die. I mean, makes more sense that we would take money out of the pockets of criminals to me. But the, the, the philosophical question of whether or not we should have borders, there's value to borders because borders create certainty about what laws apply on each side of them. You know, knowing where you're at, helps you know what sort of legal regime that you live under and, and what laws apply to the things that you do. But the, the problem has been that the conflation with the idea that borders are the same as walls. Walls are walls and borders are borders. So knowing, you know, which side of the Rio Grande is Texas and which side is Mexico is useful for knowing whether or not you live in a prosecutorial system or a, an adversarial system. You know, whether where the burden of proof goes as far as um, innocent until proven guilty or, you know, guilty until proven innocent, like it's useful for those things. It's not necessarily useful for trying to militarize the, the Rio Grande or, you know, keep one people on one side or the other. So I, I think that, you know, there is some legal utility to the concept of borders, but there's very little utility to the concept of trying to create a fortress, you know, and keep either keep people in the United States or keep people out of the United States. And you have to, you know, there's a cost whenever you try and criminalize something. When you try and make it impossible for people to come here, you enable those criminal gangs. You know, you enable coyotes to, to smuggle people into the desert and take advantage of people who are, are poor and just want a better life. And you discourage being law-abiding. When you make a law that's impossible to comply with, and last I checked for uh, an unassociated immigrant who doesn't have family ties to the United States and doesn't fall under special circumstance, from Mexico, you're looking at uh, a waiting period of, you know, for the, the normal quota lottery, potentially like 60 years. 60 years is a long damn time to, to wait to determine whether or not you're able to feed your kids or, you know, give them a better life. Because they'll all be old and you'll be dead. So you put people in a position where breaking the law is their only opportunity, whereas if you take some of these quotas away, if you make it easier to be a legal immigrant, if you separate you know, entry visa from uh, citizenship rights necessarily or, or create a guest worker program or do something to try and take some of these fraught pieces away from it, you make it so that people want to comply with the law. It's very similar to you know, some former communist countries that have, have engaged with free market principles, you know, they go to a 15% flat income tax and tax evasion goes away 
because it's worth it to evade a 70% tax, but a 15% tax, you know, like, why am I going to pay a bunch of lawyers and accountants to try and, you know, move my money offshore? It's only 15%. You know, it's that same sort of thing. If it's only a, a reasonable fee to apply to be an immigrant into this country, and we have a very wide and easy to get through door, then we don't have to spend so much time militarizing the windows and the walls because people will just come through the front door. And then the border patrol can focus on people who are dangerous, who would try and come over, you know, the Rio Grande because they know they wouldn't get through the normal background check process. Right. And I, just to kind of add or, or clarify, I think what you said, which is that I, I would say that a lot of the quota system in terms of how long it would take for uh, people to come to the United States, say from Mexico and, and some of the other countries that have a lot of immigrants in the U.S., like China and, and India, uh, the, the, the wait periods to sponsor a family member can be well over 20 years, uh, something to the effect of, why, you know, basically, why would you even try when the wait time is so long? Um, and the other issue is that even for those applying for temporary visas, uh, the issues can, can not only be wait times to get an interview or, or to be able to come, but it's also just the frequency with which those applications are denied. Um, I think that's the frustration for no, you know, often the Department of State doesn't really have to justify why they deny you. Um, they just often do. Uh, I think that is another reason, uh, the, the, you know, another frustration that so many people have so I want to I want to latch on to, to one thing that you said and obviously you said a lot there that that's very interesting um, but one thing that you said in particular is is the the um, the desire of people to come here and and so you know why would we want to punish or not reward uh, people who've taken great pains and often people who are very very poor to come here and try to make a better life for themselves, their family. The Libertarian Party supports the, essentially supports the privatization of education and that individuals should be able to make a decision as to where their children go to school um, without kind of guidance, instruction, and taxation from the government. Millions of those immigrants who were so eager to come here uh, do so with very little money and often work at least in the beginning or for a long time at low wages. Um, and one thing that they are hopeful about is that their children will get educated, will will have a good education in the United States and be able to achieve more than they did, to, to move up economically much higher than they were in their lifetimes. So how would the privatization of, of the education system help immigrants who come here with very little money? Um, well, you'd have to open up competition in the educational markets as well. You know, one of the things that, that is the problem with the, the government monopolization of education, at least in the primary levels in this country, is it's really pushed out a lot of other free market options that used to exist in this country. You used to have community schools. You used to have, and, you know, you would have the opportunity if you didn't have the amount of government regulation and their ability to have a preferred place in the marketplace, you could have, 
uh, a communal, a community school for, let's say, the low ocean immigrant community where they would focus on the things that, you know, their low ocean parents thought would be very helpful to their children and, you know, becoming more integrated into the United States. So, and, and this used to be a place that was, um, you know, at least in Phoenix where, where my family's from, the Catholic Church used to subsidize education for children of immigrant communities, particularly Spanish-speaking immigrant communities, where they were able to provide that educational opportunity outside of the government schools and with an education that was very rigorous, but was also culturally aligned to the immigrant communities. And it was uh, it produced a lot of people who moved on up in their communities. So I think that, you know, it's... Every parent that I've ever met, and, and I am a parent myself, wants what's best for their children. And so providing them more options to be able to choose from seems like the better idea to me than saying that there should be a one-size-fits-all model and then putting these educational decisions to, uh, you know, basically a plebiscite of the ballot box where you have these culture wars that are just ridiculous, where you'll have voters deciding over whether or not we can teach evolution in the schools. And then whoever wins that vote, every kid who goes to school in that entire community or state has to live with those decisions of, you know, 50% plus one of the voting population, even if, you know, more than half of them decide that they don't want to teach science in the classroom. I think having a much more open market in education would allow those educational opportunities, um, you know, alternatives to compete on an open playing field, and you would pretty quickly determine who was teaching kids well, and they would develop reputations, and those who weren't teaching kids well would fail. You know, and that's, that's the whole idea behind, you know, opening up more school choice and removing some of these privileges from the government schools is it not only gives opportunity for these community schools to provide, um, you know, niche services to, to people who may not have them, but it also spurs the existing government schools to be better because now there's an alternative against which they compete. You know, the biggest problem with government services generally is not that the people who provide them are bad people or that they don't have the right ideas. It's that by existing kind of outside of any sort of competitive, there aren't incentives to improve beyond, you know, the general altruism and pride that people have in their work. Um, I, I definitely understand the concerns about providing education that, that is insufficient and that, you know, in, in some school districts where they, as you said, don't teach evolution or, or don't teach important scientific facts. I mean, those kids are missing out. But I think my concern would be if we did that, I think there are a lot of communities that would get left behind simply because they wouldn't – the parents and the families in those communities wouldn't have – the money to pay for schools, regardless of of where those schools were, I think the public don't you think that or or how do you answer the the position that look the they just wouldn't have the economic means to pay for any type of school, and that the public education system provides them with a 
basic education that they wouldn't be able to pay for anywhere else? Um, there are probably situations on the margins where that's true, but, you know, educating one's children is right up there with, you know, shelter and transportation as far as things that people put aside money for. Um, and it's just brutal, the, the idea that, for example, in the state of California, I don't know with whether the new proposition passed, but there was a previous proposition that basically outlawed um, any sort of bilingual education. And so what you had was you had um, predominantly Anglo people in Orange County, um, you know, and up in Northern California, deciding that all the brown kids down in Southern California could not be taught in their native language, even as sort of a transitional thing, um, by referendum. And so, yeah, here's your free education. I mean, it's going to be terrible for you because you're going to start at a disadvantage and we're not going to be allowed to, to help you as far as providing bilingual education. But, hey, it's free. You know, the government provided it. Your parents didn't have to pay for it. You know, that's, that's kind of, that's the, the dark flip side of, you know, a, a universal uh, government-provided education is that then you create something where these decisions about how we educate our children, which is one of the most personal decisions you can make, are made by, like, old white people in Orange County. That's pretty brutal uh, if you're, you know, uh, a first-generation immigrant Latino family in, in L.A. And to me, that seems like that's kind of a, a terrible system. And is it better to have everybody have a free education that might be perverted in that way, or is it better to kind of see what provide and see what sort of charitable alternatives would be created and see what kind of thing that maybe that second and third generation immigrant community would provide for the newer people coming in? You know, you don't know how much people care until you give them the opportunity to care. One of the biggest problems with, um, you know, government-provided services is that you delegate your caring as a human being for your fellow human beings to a bureaucrat who works a nine-to-five and, you know, it's their job. And the outpouring that Americans give as far as, you know, personal charitable contributions, we have the highest charitable giving rate in the entire world. And this isn't the government giving money on our behalf. This is what we give to charities both domestically and overseas. So I think that, you know, we probably underestimate how good people will be to each other in this country because we've gone to a place where we take away those opportunities for goodness. Um, and I think that it really kind of stunts our national character. But I, I guess that's probably getting a little far afield of the topic well yeah i mean i think that i just think that the concern might be that in the same way that we that those same old white people in orange county could affect education throughout the state that that they also wouldn't be the people who uh, you know would donate to the community so i think there would still be concern within many areas that that there just wouldn't be enough money to to run a functioning school, but as you said, it's it's getting a little bit far away from from what we were talking about. Um, I, so I just want to—I know your time is short, and I just want to 
conclude by asking one one thing. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, that you were a public defender in Colorado. As you may know, immigration proceedings are are proceedings in which the government is um, has a trial attorney who is basically trying to prove that you are deportable from the United States and trying to trying to have that person deported from the U.S. And it functions much like a criminal proceeding. However, immigrants are not guaranteed counsel the way criminal defendants are. Do you think that immigrants should have the right to a essentially a public defender the way they would in a criminal proceeding? That's a complicated question because we... Let me sort of unpack it. Libertarians generally don't support the idea of positive rights. There's this whole philosophical idea of positive versus negative rights, right? Like a, a right to free speech is a negative right. What it says is it doesn't say I get a megaphone or a, a television station to say whatever crazy things I want to say. It says you can't stop me from talking, right? It's, 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 a, it's a right to not be stopped. Positive rights are when you get into like, I have a right to a free health care. And the problem with positive rights is that there's always someone on the other end of them. You know, there's somebody who's going to have to provide that positive right for you. And if they don't want to do it, then it's going to have to be provided at taxpayer expense. And that's where we get with, you know, the right to, to health care or the right to an education. Those are things that, that a lot of libertarians don't consider to be legitimate rights. I've come to an uneasy comfort with the, the rights afforded under the Sixth Amendment. Because my feeling is if you're going to use taxpayer dollars to try and throw somebody into a cage, then it only, you know, stands to reason that you would, you would give them a defense to try and help them not get thrown into a cage. It gets dicier when you're talking about a deportation proceeding against an undocumented or allegedly undocumented immigrant because at that point it's not, you know, you're not – suffering a criminal penalty, what you're suffering is, you know, being sent back to the country from which you came through, you know, procedures that were not necessarily legal under the time. You know, so the way I would answer a question like that is I would want a lot less of these deportations for, you know, just goofy things like, you know, you're not allowed to get a driver's license in Colorado, and we caught you driving without a license in Colorado, so now we're going to deport you back to your home country where you may or may not be murdered by Mara Salvatrucha because, you know, you had to drive to get to your job. And frequently you know, I, those I, people I, are arrested simply for driving without a license. That That's a very common reason that they get put into immigration jail. Yeah, I didn't I didn't make that example up. That was from my practice. Right, exactly. I get that a lot where people would say, look, you know, I was driving without a license, I'm going to go back, and they will probably kill me or my family. This kind of sucks. And it did. Um, so where I would like to, to focus on is let's get rid of some of these victimless crimes where where you're, you're punishing people just for status. You're punishing them for being here in an undocumented state, which is not criminal under the federal law, but you're essentially making criminals out of people who are otherwise just, you know, they suffer a status offense of not being documented immigrants um, or not legally here. 
uh, which I, I have to explain to people a lot, because a lot of people think that that's a crime to be here, and it's only the entry that's the crime, but that's another sort of misconception people have. I think that to the point that the, the removal carries some sort of criminal penalties either now or in the future as far as a, a permanent inadmissibility or a subjection to further criminal penalties if you come back, that there is a good argument to be made that those collateral consequences are criminal enough that they should implicate the same kind of principles that the Sixth Amendment does uh, under Gideon for you know providing for some sort of defense. But that's been a really tough road to hoe in the Supreme Court. You know, I mean, we haven't been able to convince the Supreme Court that lifetime sex offender registration is sufficiently criminal enough that you should have any sort of protections from that. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a tough road to hoe to try and convince the Supreme Court that people who are not necessarily here legally should have rights that we won't give to citizen sex offenders. Um, but hope springs eternal, and I think it would be as a matter of fundamental justice, it would probably be good, um, but I've also been very heartened by, you know, the amount of effort that people like Catholic Charities have put into and other um, immigrants' rights advocates have put into making sure that that representation is made available to as many people forcing, uh, uh, facing removal proceedings as possible outside of the necessity to do it at taxpayer expense. You know, I mean, it is an example of people filling that need for a community they have a heart for um, when the government won't do it because it's politically untenable. Okay. I think that's, uh, you know, an interesting uh, thing to leave it on, leave leave the show on, and and uh, let people think about. Once again, my guest today has been Nicholas Sarwark. He's chairman of the Libertarian National Committee. Mr. Sarwark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is William Menard, and this is the American Immigrant.